kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Data Rock, behind me now. We're calling today's episode Live in Los Angeles. You know, our show that we do once a month in Los Angeles has such an unpredictable energy about it. It really is kind of like a vaudeville sort of thing where you just don't know what's going to happen. We've had people from the audience jump up on stage and tell stories. We've had celebrities that we didn't even know knew about the show show up and tell stories. It's it's just an event. Once a month, it is not to be missed. And I know that it has a hell of a lot to do with the host, with Pete Holmes and Kamal Nanjiani. I am so honored that they host the show out there because these two are really rising fast in their careers. It's just awesome that they're hosting the show out there, too. Anyway, for a while, people have been saying, you know, this show is so special out here. Why don't you just put up an entire evening raw on the podcast? And our last one was so good that I thought, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Now, unfortunately, Kumail could not make it that night, so it's just Pete Holmes hosting. And I have to warn you, he doesn't prepare material. He just starts riffing more or less off of the audience. So even the hosting of the show is anything goes. And listen, if you are anywhere near Los Angeles on June 28th, 2012... That is when it's happening next. Put it in your calendar. Tell lots of friends. Now here's a little bit of what it sounds like. A whole episode of it, in fact. Kids, this is Risk, live in Los Angeles. Hi, everybody. How are you? Great. It's always a little tense up top. You know what I mean? What kind of host am I? You know. Friendly, fun. (laughs) We just high five and play Parcheesi. I've never played Parcheesi in my life. What kind of game is that? This guy knows. How you doing? (laughs) Oh, my classic Parcheesi riff up top to get the show started with a bang. I've done that so many times. Everything I'm saying is very artificial and fake. You know my, my first album, Parcheese the Wheeze, was it called? <laughs> oh, see, laugh at everything. This is what I do. I just warm it up, warm it up, warm it up. People are going to come out and bear their souls. I'll just be like, you get nothing. You know what I mean? You don't get to know me. Fuck you. I looked right at you when I said that. Your face, that was crestfallen. If you look up crestfallen, you were like so supportive. And I went, fuck you. And you went, why? <laughs> and I don't know the answer. I'm so sorry. You look like my sister. I don't have a sister. Do I? <laughs> that, that's a DNA test. That means you are my sister. Any girl that goes like that probably related to me. I do a lot of skipping. Uh, if there's people with jump rope, I'll get in the mix. I'll get in the mix. Uh, I don't know if any of this riffing is doing it for you, but it's loosening me up as the host. <laughs> You looked away. It's weird the moments I catch you in uh, as an audience because you were enjoying it and then in one moment you just had a private thought, probably like, I need to go to the bank or something, but it looked tragic. It looked like... (laughs) And then you came back and I hope you're okay. 
But what if you aren't? So I don't want to explore. So this is a... <laughs> Ever ask somebody how they're doing and they tell you and you're like, fuck you, man. It's the worst. Hey, how are you? My mom's sick. Get the fuck out of here with that. I'm just trying to pass time. We're waiting for the same elevator. You know what I'm saying? Keep it superficial. Don't get to know anyone. We're spiritual beings. Deny that. I'm kidding. I'm teasing. Who would say that? A real person? No, that's fake. Not real. Uh, okay, so what is this? What is this? I'm kidding. This is Risk. It's a storytelling show for storytellers. Who wants to go first? I'm kidding. It's not... <laughs> Oh, man, that's not how it works. We do have booked, entertaining, profession professional storytellers. When does that badge be bestowed upon you? I'm glad you were looking at me instead of off in the distance, figuring out your chase balance. You weave a few tales on an Amtrak, and then they're like, you should do Risk, man. You're the best. We have entertaining, hilarious people that tell stories, and I'm just your goofy, your goofy host, one of those goofy hosts you see sometimes. Are you here to see somebody specifically? No. I love it. Fucking living his life. What happens in here? Deal. I'll do it. Put me in the front. I have balances to think about. Good for you. Don't tell me your name. Ben, right? No. Yeah, Ben! I'm kidding. If you could see in my mind how I think I should be doing at every show I do, it's just... That's all you'd be doing the whole show. You're disappointing me the whole time. I'm trying to bring you to where I want you to be. And it's bringing me like ham on the bone. One of you is peeling me a grape. Most of you are filleting me. It's amazing. Guys and girls alike, let's be friendly. Hey, man. Uh, to bring you up to speed, everyone loves me. I'm very likable. You're not threatened and you're comfortable and you're ready for storytelling. You're going to move one over? She seemed to say, do it. Yeah. What time do you belong in? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? You ever meet somebody and you're like, it's not this time. You, I, I don't, I, just to establish again, friendly guy, I'm not gonna be like, fuck you, except to her. You're, you're huge Bud Light with lime. Fuck it, you're white, just drink a Bacardi Breezer. You can't drink that shit. Uh, okay, you belong in like the uh, 20s, 30s? I'll go with it. Does that feel right? I mean, he belongs in the 60s. Turn around and show him your 60s face. Right? We all belong in different times. He's the 60s too, but late 60s. Late 60s, 80s. That's a good time for you. 90s. What the fuck? It's like 80s, 90s, and today. Jesus Christ. The show is for me all of a sudden. This is the best seat in the house. You guys can't see what I'm talking about. 60s, 80s, late, I'm sorry, 70s, 80s, 90s, today. I don't get paid. I'm going to enjoy this. Do you understand? Oh, man. Uh, are you guys ready? How about a round of applause for the idea of a storytelling show? That's good. That's, let's make it a little more exciting. And keep that applause going for our first storyteller, Jillian Lauren, everybody. Jillian Lauren! Thank you. So, when I was a punk rock teenager in the 80s, the very worst thing you could be was a poser, right? It was like worse than being a jock, it was worse than being a prep, and now that seems sort of silly to me, 
because I think that we're all posers at one time or another. You know, there's this moment for everybody that we see somebody and we say, that is who I am. That is what I want to be. And for me, that person was my best friend, Julie Fogliano's older cousin, Jody Pagano. I'm from like deep Sopranos country, New Jersey, okay? And Jodi Pagano was so cool. She was so punk. She wore Doc Martin shoes before anyone else, and she carried a little lunchbox instead of a purse. And she had this like insane record collection with everything from the Ramones to Minor Threat to Alien Sex Fiend. And I memorized Jodi's whole thing. And I am a very quick study. So all it took was a move from one school district to another, and bam. I became what I was pretending to be. And like many other angry punk teenagers before me, I left home very early. So by the time I was 17 years old, I was already living in New York on my own. And I was bartending at a bar called the Red Lion on Bleecker Street. You know the Red Lion? The Red Lion is sort of like punk rock purgatory, you know? I mean, it's the kind of bar where they play Wasting Away Again in Margaritaville like 12 times a night. <laughs> but I didn't even care because I fell in love for the first time at the Red Lion. I fell in love with Adam the bartender and Adam the bartender taught me many things. He taught me about Elvis Costello, and he taught me about foot massages. And he taught me that some ex-girlfriends just never really go away. <laughs> and the day that I learned that, I got fired from the Red Lion because I pitched a glass at his head. <laughs> and truly, I was heartbroken. And a friend of mine came to me and tried to cheer me up. And she said, you know what? You are a terrible cocktail waitress anyway. Why don't you come to the strip club where I work where they won't care that you're a terrible cocktail waitress? <laughs> so I'm 17 and honestly, I'm kind of curious as to what goes on inside a strip club. But mostly, I really just need a job. So I say, okay. And I borrow one of those like ponytailed fall Madonna blonde ambition things, early 90s. And, uh, and I put on my shortest skirt, which happens to be a kilt left over from my punk rock days. And I put on the highest heels I have, which are like these two inch pumps that my mother bought me to wear to synagogue. <laughs> and I head uptown. And when I walk into the Kit Kat Club, the smell of the place just hits me like a wall. There are, it, it just smells like someone lined up like 600 gin and tonics and used them all as ashtrays and then mixed in like Clorox and coconut body lotion. <laughs> it is enough to make your eyes tear. But when the tears clear from my eyes, I see that the Kit Kat Club looks pretty much like I expected it to look. There's a stage at the far end of the room with a blowing silver tinsel curtain, and there's a catwalk with like a bored-looking blonde holding up a brass pole at the end of it, and 
There are men scattered around at, at tables in the club, and I spot a guy with his hair slicked back wearing a purple silk shirt, and I think, this must be the manager. So I walk up to him, and I say, hi, I'm Jill, and I'm looking for a cocktailing job. And he looks at me, and he says, why don't you just dance? Uh, and I was like, um, because it had never occurred to me that at a strip club, someone might suggest that I take my clothes off. But I recovered pretty quickly, and I said, no, 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 I'm a cocktail waitress. And he said, all right, suit yourself. You could start right now if you want. And then he explained to me the drink hustle. Because cocktailing at the Kit Kat Club was a drink hustle. So in case you don't know, this is how a drink hustle works. Pay attention. Um, you chat the guys up. You try to get them to buy you a drink. If they agree to buy you a drink, you order a pina colada. And you are served a fake pina colada that comes in like this big, tall, green, tiki glass. And the manager says to me, they're disgusting. Plus, you gotta spit them back or they'll make you fat. <laughs> and, and it was true, these were disgusting drinks. So you, you drink and spit, drink and spit, these fake, fattening, disgusting pina coladas. And they're timed for seven minutes, and then somebody comes, and you try to get them to order you another drink. And these drinks cost $30, <laughs> off the top of which you get five. And the real trick is that you want to be somewhere else entirely when this bill comes. <laughs> so I listened to this, and I thought, I'm going to hate this. But I tried it, and I was right, I did. I hated it. And so two hours later, I was standing by the bar, calculating that I had made exactly $15. <laughs> and I was looking up at the girl on the stage, and I noticed that the same girl I had seen in the dressing room, not five minutes before, and in the dressing room, she looked like, plain and flawed. She looked like a real girl. On stage, she looked gorgeous and confident and magical. And I had that moment. I had that moment that I had not that many years before with Jodi Pagano. You know, I saw that transformation that girl had made and I thought, that is what I want to be. And so I dared myself to try it, just that one time. And I spent six of my $15 on a double shot of Jack Daniels, and I threw that back. And then with the rest of it, I went to the concession stand. There was a concession stand <laughs> at the Kit Kat Club. Uh, and I bought a Kit Kat Club G-string. And what a Kit Kat Club G-string was is basically like this triangle of uh, black, highly flammable material <laughs> with a white top hat and cane printed on it. 
so that you would know you were somewhere classy. <laughs> and I took this and I took it into the dressing room and like, I really tried to pull all my courage together. And I put it on and I looked down and I noticed with abject horror that I had not shaved my bikini line. Ever. Ever. <laughs> I didn't even know it was a thing. And so there are like curls of hair peeking out around the top hat and the cane and I'm like trying to stuff them back in and it's totally unsuccessful. And then the Jack Daniel starts talking. And I'm like, I'm gonna rock this. Cause it's Euro. And so I take my big Euro bush and I take it and get up on the stage. And the DJ is playing that Cure song that goes, however far away, I will always love you. However long I stay, I will always love you. And I think about Adam, the bartender, and it seems like this very tragic, romantic sort of moment. <laughs> and so I let the tragedy and the romance take me all the way down to the end of the catwalk, and then I figure I should probably do something else other than just turn around and walk back, so I do a little spin, and I catch sight of myself in a mirror, as I do. And in those rosy lights, I don't even recognize myself, you know? I I'm not awkward anymore. I'm sort of unusual. And I'm not chubby anymore. I'm sort of like a Russ Meyer heroine. <laughs> and I liked it. And so I danced around a little more and then I figured I should probably take off my bra because that's what you do there. So I unhooked my bra, I turned around, unhooked my bra, I threw it to the side, I turned back around with my hands over my boobs and I fully expect to do like this big, you know, showgirl reveal. <laughs> but for some reason, my hands won't move. So I'm standing up there frozen with my hands over my boobs and it's this very surreal moment because I'm like willing my hands to move but they're not moving and there are all these expectant faces looking up at me and, and it's sort of this out-of-body experience where I'm on the stage willing my hands to move they're not moving and I'm also floating up somewhere by the disco ball looking at me going what is she gonna do now and then this guy who I had served drinks to earlier, a uh, nice guy with a beard, flannel shirt kind of guy, walks up to the stage and he says, you're doing just fine, sweetheart. You're a much better dancer than you are a waitress. <laughs> and he holds out a $20 bill. And I think it's mostly true that in any given situation, every man will have his price. And apparently, mine is $20. <laughs> because that was all it took. I dropped my hands, I reached for the bill, and there I was. And it was fine. And 
I danced around a little more and, and it was sort of like wildly exhilarating and exciting. And the men by the side of the stage were laughing and they were clapping more enthusiastically than I heard them clap for anybody all night. And probably more enthusiastically than I ever heard after that in my entire career because I was that rare thing. I was that thing you can only be once. I was a true amateur. And so I took my money and I took it to the dressing room and I counted it. And I figured that I had made more money in two songs than I had ever made in an entire night of cocktailing at the Red Lion. And I looked at the girls on either side of me and I thought, I could do this. I could be sparkly and, and wild like they are. I could have this whole new life. And I took that money and I went home and I woke up the next morning and I went right out and I bought myself a pair of clear Lucite platform heels and a neon pink bikini and I took it home and I danced around in it all afternoon until I had it down. And I'm a very quick study. And when I showed up at work that night with my dance bag over my shoulder, no one even recognized me as the girl who had started work as a cocktail waitress the night before, and bam. I had become what I was pretending to be. And it wasn't until many years later that I figured out that you should be very, very careful what you pretend to be. Thank you. Gillian Lauren, everybody. Applause, applause for the next storyteller, Brian Babylon, everybody. Brian! Hello, Los Angeles. How are you? Give it up for yourselves for being attractive in L.A. That's what I like. All right. Well, I guess the theme of this was game-changing. Game-changing was a thing. And uh, what I'm going to tell you a story is... And I did this last night when I did the comedy show here, but it was quick. I really didn't get to talk about it the way I wanted to. I can do that now. And this was the day that I pretty much decided that I wanted to do stand-up comedy. And this was like five years ago. And I was substitute teaching in Harvey, Illinois, which is like, it's like the inner city, but in the suburbs. So it's like Memphis, Tennessee, but outside of Chicago. So it's crazy. And... Uh, <laughs> It's weird a little bit. So I, what I would do is I worked at United Airlines, uh, and then I got laid off because of the bankruptcy. So I'm, like, traveling to Europe trying to find myself. You know how white people do. You know, they go to Europe. <laughs> you go to Europe, find yourself, fall in love with a German girl. You know, it, it, she don't really speak English. It's a lot of eye contact. That was a relationship. It was a whole bunch of eye contact. And then um, so how I would finance this lifestyle is I would substitute teach in Harvey, Illinois, which was a you know, sort of a low-income school where you, all you needed was a college degree and you can teach some shit for a semester. You know, that's what they tax dollars pay for. So, one day, I was asked to be the sub for the MR classes. That's advanced special needs, like advanced, advanced, like wheelchairs, helmets, and big shoes and shit. So, and honestly, this, this story is going to be inappropriate. I'm being straight, I mean, buckle the fuck up. This is, I mean, seriously, okay? So, the back... 
to back the backstory of it is like I knew this whole class. It was only eight boys, and I was real cool with them. My name was Mr. B, and I would watch Dragon Ball Z with them and hang out with them, and you know, just kick it with them. And that they were real comfortable with me. So my friend Karen, who was their teacher, had to go to a wedding. She trusted me, Mr. B, with her boys. So. One of the students, his name was Kenny, and he had a wheelchair, and he had some guy who his job, taxpayers' money, his job was to pretty much get Kenny off the bus, take Kenny to the bathroom, and that was it. That was this dude's job. The day I subbed for Kenny's class, guess who didn't fucking come to work that day? <laughs> of course, Tyler's ass did not come to work that day. So in the back of my mind, I'm like, fuck, but trying to block it out. So we watched like at least three hours of Dragon Ball Z that day. <laughs> and I'm in the back of my mind stalling like, ah, I know I gotta take these motherfuckers to the bathroom. So, when it got in the line, I'm wheeling them down to the bathroom, everyone goes, and you know, Kenny's looking at me. And to describe what Kenny's situation was, y'all remember Timmy from South Park, right? Just imagine that, but dipped in chocolate. Boom, Kenny. <laughs> okay, so he had like, you know, very small, very small boy, who had a seatbelt, and um, big shoes and stuff, and his waist had to be at least 13 inches wide, okay? So we rolled, I rolled him into the handicapped stall, closed the door, and it's amazing how small a handicapped stall gets when you got two people and a wheelchair, okay? Like, at a club, it's, it's humongous, but, like, <laughs> I mean, but in this situation, it got real tight, so I rolled him up to the, to the toilet, and I just kind of turned around, and, you know... It was quiet for a sec, and I looked at him, and then he's sitting there looking at me like, motherfucker, you know I can't get up, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, yeah, great, shit, fuck, okay. So I undo his seatbelt, and I turn around again, and he's like, yo, you know, he gives me a look like, dude, come on. So I lifted him up, and I've kind of like propped him on with his arms onto the wall, and then turned around and then realized, shit, I got to pull his pants down because if he did that, it would be like a slapstick comedy thing and he would bust his head. So he, as, he's hold, as he's holding his head, his body up with his arms, I guess this was a routine that clearly Tyler knew about that I didn't know the whole ins and outs of how to take him to the bathroom. Clearly, that was a job that someone needed to do. So I get on my knees and right then I'm like, God damn, I can't, I've never thought I would find myself, Brian Babylon, on my knees in the bathroom stall. Okay, that's just a type of party and I'm not down for it. So I'm on my knees and I pull this little boy's pants down and I see that he has a fucking pull-up diaper. I'm like, okay, I guess he would need a pull-up diaper. You know, I'm thinking that in my mind. Okay, so I pull down the pull-up and I turn my head and I'm like, in my mind, fuck it. Whatever you do, wherever you pee, just pee. We weren't here, we'll bounce. So I turn my head, I'm on my knees, and I turn my head, and I don't hear any noises. And then I'm like, shit, what the fuck is going on? So I look out the corner of my peripheral, and I have very good peripheral vision. It's like, seriously, I don't know, it's like, whatever it is, I have very good peripheral vision. So out of my peripheral vision, I see Kenny's waist. Then I see this large mass coming out of Kenny's waist. Now I'm like, Instantly, ladies and gentlemen, Los Angeles, California, I thought, fuck, this little boy is so deformed that his butt is turned around and facing the front and he's taking a dump out the front. That's the first thing I thought. I know that's crazy. I'm like, shit, he's taking the shit out the front. Wow, this is handicapped. So as I turn around and see, it's not a turd, but I swear to God to you, it's the biggest horse cock that I've ever seen in my fucking life. And... 
the best description of the face I made because we have been watching Dragon Ball Z all day. It was like a, it was like a Vegeta stroke face, like, oh, oh, unbelievable, I can't believe. It was the craziest, I was like, it was half jealousy and half shock in the same, like, wow, what, wow, wow. At that point, I'm like, fuck this, man. I'm on my knees. This humongous handicapped child cock in my face. I'm done with this situation. So, <laughs> this is where the story just jumps the shark, okay? So, as I'm like hurrying to get myself out of the situation, I pull the pull up up. And at that point, the huge horse dick gets stuck on the diaper. And, I'm, and the elastic gets pulled down with the, di- the dick meat. So it's like heavy dick meat on a diaper. So you feel the elastic of the diaper plastic with the heavy dick meat. And those are two feelings that should never twine meat. Okay? Diaper and heavy dick meat should never meet. Never. So I feel the dick meat on the diaper. I'm like, oh my God, I need a career change at that point. What's the theme of this? Game changer, right motherfucking there. That was right there. As I felt that heavy child dick meat on the diaper, and I'm trying to flip it into the diaper like a bullshit game of ball in a cup. It was like, oh my God. At that moment, get me the fuck out of this situation. So I pull his pants up and I set him down. I'm like, man, whatever you do, pee just pee. I don't care. And that, and that you know what? That's what I kind of wrote my first joke of, of you see these diaper commercials where you see, you know, them trying to sell fancy diapers and they're pouring cups of blue piss into a diaper to prove how strong these diapers are. And I'm like, first of all, who's letting their kid just sit in cups of piss like that? And secondly, your child's kidneys is fucked up because his pee is blue. That's just... So I rolled Kenny back to the, to the classroom. And at that point, I never went back to Brooks Elementary Junior High School the week after that. And I've been doing pretty decent doing stand-up comedy. I love your city. I love you. You guys are very attractive, smart people. And uh, keep supporting public radio. Adios. Thank you very much. Right? I'm going to pretend the tail end of that was for me. (laughs) Okay. Uh, All right, guys, you're doing wonderfully. Feel good about yourselves as an audience. And remain your wonderful selves for the next storyteller. Let's start applauding right now for Jenna Brister, everybody. Jenna! Oh, she's over there. She's over there. What is up? How are you guys feeling? Oh, my God. Greatest hits. Keep it going all night. Run the clock. Okay, so everyone was here in the 90s, right? Everyone was alive. Okay, so I, I don't know about you guys, but we had a family van. It was one of those Dodge Caravans, burgundy. And so my mom got one of those, and my dad's a spy. Fuck the podcast, you know? And um, seriously, it's crazy CIA stuff. But, anyways, so he was off spying, and so my mom was left alone with me and my brother and my sister. And so she would let, we had this very like Huck Finn suburban Seattle childhood. She let us like paint our bodies with watercolor and like make mud volcanoes with Alka Seltzer, Taekwondo, like shit like that. But when we're out running errands, uh, she kept this like quart saucepan underneath the driver's seat of the van. And anytime we're out, like about to go to the grocery store, and uh, me or one of my siblings had to, to pee, 
she was like, okay, cool. And she would like throw it in a park. And then the rest of us who didn't have to would like stand outside the van and she would shut the slider. And then whoever had to, like me and my sister would just squat over it. Or my brother would like aim. And, you, and this was called the peapot. This was like a social norm in my family. Like the peapot's there for you. And so, uh, and then when you were done, she would open the van, grab the handle and like toss the urine into the closest planner box. Like that was my childhood. Like I never saw the inside of like a Starbucks bathroom. Like those didn't exist. It was like peepaw or nothing. We continued to use it until I was at least 10 because I think I remember it disappeared around the same time I stopped like wetting the bed, which I think if I ever went to therapy, they'd be like, oh, that's sort of fucking connected, obviously. You know what I mean? Because I had this mindset that there's like, there's always going to be a peepaw for you, Jen. You never have to go before you leave the house. You can do it in the car. Who cares? And uh, um, when I was 14, uh, I don't know if anyone else played like Parks and Rec athletics, um, but I loved playing softball, um, not because I was good, because I was not, I was horrible, but I love call and response chants. <laughs> Fucking so much. Okay, and so, but two of my best friends, uh, Manny and Courtney, they, uh, their dads were the coaches of like the number one team in Washington called Blue Thunder which looked exactly as you would imagine. Cobalt blue tank tops with like a cloud and a lightning bolt shooting out of it. Cobalt blue sliding shorts, which if you know what sliding, it's like Spanx with padding on the side so you can like slide into home and like not scratch your saddlebags or whatever when you're 14. And, so, and then uh, white pinstripe shorts over that and like socks and cleats. So they were like sick, super cool uniforms. Uh, there were tryouts. I'm horrible, but just because I had so much energy, they were like, let's put her on the squad. And I was stoked because like all my BFFs were on the team and everyone like, okay, remember in junior high, like the funny butch girl, like this was a team of like hilarious butch girls, which I thought was awesome. So the team was dope. Um, I sometimes played right field if uh, injuries and uh, increasing score uh, would let it happen. Uh, but I liked right field because uh, I got to just have some big league chew, great flavor. Um, I would sniff my imitation leather glove. <laughs> Huff the plastic, and uh, I would do call and response for my field. You know what I mean? I was that fucking weirdo. Um, but rarely, balls would rarely fly my way. Luck be the lady. Like so, I never had to like deal with the softball aspect. But our biggest rival was the Lady Hawks. Now this, they had, they're like that team with like, oh my god, do you know the pigtail braids with like ribbons or black and red, and we're cobalt and white. So we're like, fuck you guys. And they had like this terrifying pitcher who I can only describe by saying like, if Chelsea Clinton ain't Chris Farley. <laughs> fucking scary and she would hit you on purpose and so uh, I hated going to bat because I was terrified I've seen people get in the face and so the season's going on the squad is awesome so we make it to the state tournament which is hilarious um, and I'm spending the whole time like I don't know if you've heard a, a softball call and response but my favorite one was like hey Tanya hey what hey Tanya hey what hey what how do you spell your victory I split my V I dot my I I curl my C-T-O-R-Y like, she splits her V she dots her she curls like that was the funnest shit to me I was like the game's starting that's nice I see a hole out there like it was awesome I loved it. This is the summer of love, you know what I mean? And like, some of my friends were getting fingered for the first time, but I was like, fisting bags of Cool Ranch Doritos. Like, that was my life. And so we make it to the state tournament, and it's in Richland, out in eastern Washington, which the billboard, when you drive in on 90 East, says, the Palm Springs of Washington. And so... And my family loads up in the van, minus the peapot this time. It disappeared, which was weird. Uh, never to be talked about again, honestly. And so we play the first game, and it's like over 100 degrees out. And this was before water was cool. 
Okay, remember in the 90s when nobody drank water? Like you drank Squeeze-Its and Capri Suns and like shitty Kool-Aid. Like that was it, you guys. And, uh, and I was 14 on a binge. And so we play the first three games and we win because the team is good. I'm on the bench leading chance, love and life. And uh, we win the next couple games. And so it's Sunday morning. We have a 9 a.m. game to see if we're gonna make it in the championships. We face off against the Diamond Dolls. Annihilate, okay? But the problem is, in that game, it was like, the Diamond Dolls are bitches, okay? Like, they're not, they're not nice. And uh, uh, Kelly got body-checked by their catcher when she was sliding in a home, so she was out. And then uh, my friend Lisa slid over a glass shard and like cut her leg open, and there was like blood squirting everywhere. And so all the reserves are gone, so I'm like, fuck, I'm gonna have to play in the championship game. Like, there was no reason why Jenna Brister should be playing a competitive sport at a state level at any point in my life, at all. And so, I love it. Um, one of the dads looks like Randy Johnson. I have just to set the stage for you. The other one looked like Prince Charles. Nicest guys ever for letting me on this team. Okay, so imagine Randy Johnson and Prince Charles are like, you're going in, Brister. <laughs> I'm like, yes, whatever you say. You know, unit, Prince Charles. Um, and so, uh, so it's the championship game and we're facing off against, yes, fucking Lady Hawks. Chelsea Clinton, Chris Farley is warming up on the side and uh, my parents are so excited because they're like, you're gonna play. There's only nine of you. <laughs> I was like, dang it. And sure enough, I'm in the game. And luckily, I either walk because I had a very small strike zone as you can probably see from where you're seated, or I strike out because I blew at softball. And so uh, those were like my two options. So the first few Indians are going on and I walk successfully, you know, and they put someone good after me in the lineup so that I can get the run, you know? Um, but that day, things were not good digestively for me. I was on day three of a pretty horrific dehydration and uh, I was back and forth to the porta potty, and there were two porta potties down the third base line, past this chain link fence. And in between innings, and like whenever I wasn't doing anything, like I see a hole out there, I would like run and sprint down, and then like peel down my sliding shorts, and just like I'm talking like shit lava shooting out of me. And uh, I didn't know why. I was like, oh, did I eat some bad pizza? It's like, no, you never drink water ever, 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 just sugar. And so my mom's looking at me like super concerned, like, are you okay? Because I'm like running back and forth at the porta potty, and I'm just like, this blows. I don't know what I'm gonna do. It's all tied up, and we're getting towards the end of the game. And I get up to bat, and Prince Charles gives me the signal to bunt, which is baseball lingo for put your face in the line of fire. <laughs> and so. Um, I attempt it, I botched that, obviously. I never would successfully bunt in a game. And uh, I get walked. So I'm like, okay, fine. And so I'm on first base, and Prince Charles then gives me the signal to steal. <laughs> you have to be joking me. I'm about to shit myself. And uh, so I'm standing there, and like Courtney's up to bat, which is awesome. So I'm like, okay, great. Which is good news bears for the squad, because we'll get the thing, but bad news bears for me, because I'm going to poop in T minus five seconds. <laughs> And so I'm like, all right, I have to do it. And so um, Chelsea Clinton uh, pitches the ball and it gets past the catcher. So I'm like, all right, I'm off, I'm going. And so I'm like sprinting a dead sprint towards second base. They throw the ball. And so I launch into, the reason why you have sliding shorts, into a figure four leg lock. And like I tuck this leg under, slide into second as a pool of hot foam <laughs> shoots out of my body. And I can feel it. No one can see it because of the sliding shorts. <laughs> So it's shellacked against my, my person as I'm standing there having my first ever 
panic attack to the soundtrack of softball noises. There's like high fives and people like, <laughs> whatever. And Prince Charles is like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, geez. And so uh, I'm waiting there, Courtney's still up to bat. And I'm like, I have no options. And so luckily the next pitch, she hits it deep out of the outfield and I run awkwardly past third base and Prince Charles is doing one of these. Which is like, fucking go home, Brister. So I'm like, ah, my parents are like up out of their lawn chairs, just like, yeah. It was like the greatest thing ever, but I was like having the worst time ever. And so I go around third and I like go past everyone and I'm like, hi, fine, that's all. Yeah, thanks so much, that was awesome, that was great. And I just like ran straight down the chain link fence and my mom's just like, what? And the whole squad's like too excited because now we're like winning by one. And I get in the porta potty and I pull down my sliding shorts. And it's like a chocolate mousse royale foam party. <laughs> Brown on cobalt, guys. Not a good color scheme. Not a good one. And so I peel off. I wore cleats and top, naked. Everything, I peeled everything else off. And I, I put the sliding shorts in the hole of the porta potty. And then I unraveled the toilet paper over it. Because like, if someone went in there, they'd be like, oh, cobalt blue. There's a blue thunder. <laughs> someone on blue thunder fucking shit themselves. And so, so I covered it over and I put on the white pinstripe shorts. And I'm like, all right. And so I went back and like, just like my dad, slipped quietly into the dugout. And, uh, and my, mom, my mom comes over to me and she's like, Jenna, where, where are your sliding shorts? I didn't know what to say. I, I, I just looked at her horrified and I stared her in the glasses. I said, I pooped them. <laughs> and I should have known that the one woman who let me urinate in kitchenware in the family van routinely for 10 years wouldn't really give a fuck. And she looks at me and she just goes, classic. All right, get back in there. Go. You got a game to finish. And I was like, okay. So the peapot will never, will never again be there for me. But my, my crazy ass family always will. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, Jenna. She could fit in my pocket. <laughs> okay, all right, guys. We're doing great, doing great, feeling great, feeling good. We have one final storyteller, and he's a delight. Are you guys ready for a delight? <laughs> one of my favorite people. Please give it up for Greg Fitzsimmons, everybody. Greg! for that very calm young man. Pete is like, he's like my um, yin and yang. He's like this calm, sweet, accepting, uh, kind of a pussy. <laughs> but like in the best possible way, he's a pussy. Like, like he just can't be anything else. Like some people are pussies because they're sublimating their real instincts. And Pete is just a good guy. And I've tried to push him. I want to see him fucking snap. And I can't. I mean, I literally, like, one night, he, he was on at the UCB, and I was on next. And I literally walked on stage halfway into his closing bit, and I just stood there. And he goes to me, oh, I'm sorry, am I going long? And I just shook my head and walked off the stage. 
I can't do it. I can't crack this son of a bitch. I'm the opposite. I'm a very angry person. And, uh, you know, and I found comedy, I think, as a way of uh, getting that out and dealing with it. And I think a lot of it springs from, it's just Bronx Irish DNA. It's just in, I don't know that I ever could have been anything but, uh, you know, controlled anger, successfully working with anger. And the thing is, I grew up in New York, and uh, I grew up like upper middle class. We grew up in a town called Tarrytown, just outside the city. Yeah, thank you very much, sir. Do you know it? You didn't live there. I took swimming lessons there. At the YMCA? Yeah. Wow. I saw a kid almost get molested there once. <laughs> didn't know it at the time. Didn't know it at the time. Was taking swim lessons, and the, and the shower, it's like one of those Holocaust showers. It's just a big room with the shower heads. And so we're all like fucking four or five. And I just remember the guy who taught it, he had a shaved head. I forget his name. Was that his name? Comes in. Yes! Motherfucker! Oh. That makes this story creepier. Because we were in that shower, and this is way before puberty, no kind of self. Uh, you know, we're not inhibited, and we're all standing there, you know, showering, and then J came in, and he picked one of the kids up, because the girls were now in the swim practice, and he picked him up, and he pretended he was going to carry him out to where the girls were, but I remember specifically his fingers clutching the butt cheeks of the naked boy and holding him up and thinking, that's so fucking funny. It was a visual that stayed with me, and I never thought, you don't think at that age that it's wrong, Cut to 20 years later, getting high with my friends. <laughs> and we're talking about the YMCA, and I talk about, yeah, we were in the shower. And it all played through my head. But now with the knowledge of what I fucking really saw, and I went, I think that was wrong. <laughs> I think that was wrong. <laughs> Had you ever heard stories like this? Uh, no, no. He was, I, I always thought he was a very nice man. Very nice. <laughs> uh, that's, that's why there was no red flags when he grabbed the kid's ass cheeks. He's being very nice. Anyway. So you know Tarrytown, and the YMCA is basically, if there's a good, good side of the tracks and a bad side of the tracks, the YMCA are the tracks. Because below it are housing projects and, uh, you know, like serious, like, there were big... The pool was dark. The, it was dark in I'll take it from here. We got it. <laughs> we, I appreciate you fleshing out the scenario. But now I'm going to run a narrative right through it. So, uh, I live in this town, and, I, and, you know, from my bedroom, I can see the whole New York City skyline on, out of one of my windows, and then the other window, I can see a GM plant and all these tenements, and so my family uh, felt that it was better to send me to one of the worst school systems in the fucking country, like, horrible, and I didn't know why they did it, and, uh, and so... 
it was part of this whole thing, I think, that my, because they were both born poor in the Bronx and I think pretty abused by their parents and the church, especially Catholic schools, they get the shit kicked out. So I think they didn't want to raise pussy. My dad's main mission in life, not to raise a pussy. So he would do things like, we, bro- we belonged to a golf club in White Plains, but they made us work humiliating jobs from a young age. Like I used to work in the shoeshine room at like 10. I, like on a hot summer day, everyone's in the pool. I'm fucking shining shoes, dizzy from the fumes with Willie Galloway, who had a fist. He called the Black Hammer. This old black guy from Texas. And he fucking had a bull whip, and he'd hit you with the bull whip. I'm not making this shit up. He had a cattle prod, and he would fucking zap you with a cattle prod, and then my father would laugh about it. He was sick. I could have been playing golf. And I was like caddying and I would like pick up balls. Old guys would hit balls at me and I'd have to pick them up with a bag for like three bucks an hour. And it was nuts. And then, and then instead, of, he could have sent me to a nice private school. And instead, they sent me to this really shitty school. And so, um, so go, I'm at this one school and I remember this story because it was like sixth grade. And the school was in the bad part of town. And uh, there were the thing they called the benches because all these people hung out on them, they were called the grave diggers. And funny story about the grave diggers, uh, what they did was they dug up a grave uh, of a newly buried body and they were on angel dust and they played football with body parts. (laughs) And the police knew this because they showed up and actually watched them because they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And three of them went to prison for several years. Then got out of prison, went back to the benches where I would walk past them to go to school every day. And uh, so, and, and just the, the set back in, which was just above the GM plant, where all the workers would go and drink during their breaks and, and get high. And you wonder, how did American cars get so bad? Tarrytown, New York. They were all fucked up. Like, all my friends' fathers worked there. And like, oh, yeah, my dad comes home shit-faced from work every day. It was a party. It was a lemon party every fucking day. So... I was in sixth grade, and I was already, um, comedy was already a big part of my life. It was a, I, I had all kinds of routines that I would do. I was just a really, as you can see, I'm not a big guy. I was a really skinny little pale. I was bald then, in sixth grade. <laughs> I was like Charlie Brown. It was very sad. And so I would, uh, I would tell jokes. That was my thing. And I would do bits with other people, like this guy, John Yerzak. We would do, like, the, we would do uh, the 2,000-year-old man routines. And uh, like mup- shit from the Muppet Show, and uh, and then there was this, and then there was this other kid named Dwayne Davis, who was this black kid, who was just, you know, the toughest but coolest kid, and his nickname was Snoopy. Snoop, way before the other fucking Snoop, he was Snoop. How you write pictures of Snoopy on his notebooks? Everybody called him Snoop. He was fucking cool. He was beautiful. He was this kid who had just like how you could have the confidence he had in sixth grade. Just star basketball player, great student, fucking good looking, dating Tynesha Davis at the time, who was gorgeous. The two of them were fucking beautiful. And he was, but then you start hearing that he was, he was getting high, you know? And we thought that was cool, you know? Hey, Snoop smoking reefer, man. And it was cool. But then the joke was, little skinny me, is I would pretend that I could scare him. So I'd go up in front of a bunch of kids, and I'd be like, uh, and I'd be like Snoop, where's my book? And he'd be like, oh, man, I don't know. I'll find. He'd act really scared. And, and it was fucking hilarious. We do it every day. 
And people couldn't believe it. They were like, Greg, are you fucking crazy? I'm like, no, 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 it's funny. Watch, Snoop's in on it. And so this went on, and then we get to seventh grade, which is like the next school up. You finish at sixth, and then seventh and eighth is where shit starts to get a little more serious. Puberty's kicking in. And uh, me and my friends, we started getting high. Uh, my friend Frank Jackson would bring a, a cassette tape. It was a Mata Hoople cassette tape filled with pin joints, and they were a dollar. And uh, mostly paper, but we'd smoke weed at lunch every single day in seventh grade. And then me and, me and my, my friend Ricky, his father had a wine cellar, and he'd steal a bottle before school at least one day a week, and we'd drink a bottle of wine before homeroom at 12. <laughs> and then we'd get high, and, uh, and it was really fucking crazy. And so uh, it was just, a, it's a very fucked up town. It's hard for me to describe how insane, where did you grow up, sir? Hastings. Okay, so Hastings was a really nice, it was a hamlet. Hastings was a hamlet. And it was this bucolic town on the Hudson, which Tarrytown also was, but it didn't have projects and a, and a GM plant. So it just... It, you had Yonkers? Yeah, but you were, you were far enough from Yonkers. You were okay in Hastings. It's put, put it this way. It's called Hastings hyphen on hyphen Hudson. Hastings on Hudson. If you're on anything, it's not that fucking bad. If you're on Avon or on Hudson or... <laughs> so, so anyway, we get to seventh grade. And now um, I come up to Snoop one day. We're in the hallway. And, he's, he's with the, and here's the thing you got to understand about uh, the black kids in Tarrytown is there was like three or four families. And it was like everybody was fucking related. Like if, if you were a Davis or a Murphy, you had cousins and second cousins and uncles. And you didn't know who belonged to who until a fight started, and then all of a sudden, like, random black people came and beat the shit out of you. Because you fucked with one of them. But I didn't know this yet. I was about to find out. I come up to Dwayne one day, and he's hanging out with a few other black kids, and, uh, and I go, uh, I threw my pencil, and I go, Dwayne, I dropped my pencil. And Dwayne just looks at me like, and these kids are looking at him like, what the fuck is this, Dwayne? And Dwayne just reaches over and he picks me up, puts me on his shoulder, and fucking body slams me. And I just laid there and I couldn't fucking breathe. <laughs> and I just heard a bunch of people laughing and high-fiving Dwayne. And I was just like, what the, f Dwayne, the script, what happened to the script? The bit, you know, the bits. <laughs> and he just... They all turned around and walked away, and I saw Dwayne walking away, and then I just saw him kind of look over his shoulder at me like, like he cared, but he could, like that was, what's the theme tonight? When the game changed, that's, that was it. When they told me that theme, I thought about like for me, and it wasn't how I felt about black people, it was just about how I understood that life gets to a certain point. I still love black people, you're beautiful. <laughs> Are you Tynesha? You're not Tynesha. <laughs> it just, it changed the fact that everything has context in it, you know, and that that sadly gets uh, bad. And, uh, and my kids now, and I, I think the reason why my dad sent me again to this shitty school where the grades were horrible and I had no education and I was doing drugs at a young age is that he didn't want me to be spoiled. He wanted me to be, be kind of, you know, street smart and tough. And, uh, and now, I have two kids, and they go to a public school that has, 
probably 40% of the kids are on school lunch programs. It's Spanish immersion school. And it's a fucking tough school. And his best friends are Latino and black. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I didn't have a choice. It never seemed like a choice to me to send my kid to a place where he was going to be one of every gifted child in the class where they're all not given grades and they're just in pods where they sort of like give their best effort and are rewarded with vegan fucking chips <laughs> and the moms are all hot in yoga pants with yoga fucking Starbucks cups that are this big and the dads are all alpha douchebags but they act gentle at school. <laughs> I didn't want any of that anger. I didn't want that repressed fucking anger. I wanted a real school and I don't know, I, it didn't like consciously, it wasn't like I want to fuck my kid up. It was just more like, no, I want him to know what life is. I want him to be around real people and know that for this slice of his life, the universe will revolve around the upper middle class white male that he is, who's fucking gorgeous, and my daughter. They're beautiful, straight A's, captains of fucking sports teams. And I said, let's put them somewhere where they're not the middle of it. And I know it's going to be, and every day, and part of that I think also is my father... It's very Oedipal. You don't want your son. He's gonna. Your son is gonna try to kill you, metaphorically. (laughs) He will challenge you. He will grow past you. He will be more successful than you. So I don't want to facilitate that. (laughs) In the same way that my father did not want to facilitate that. So every day I pull up to that school with the chain link fence and the fucking concrete playground and I hand him his lunch and I open the door and I say, good luck, asshole. <laughs> All right, thanks very much. You guys have been great. Greg Fitzsimmons, everybody, one more time for the wonderful Greg Fitzsimmons. That is our show, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out. I want to thank my sister and her helpful friend and guru and John Lennon and Chad. Fuck you, Chad. Scarface and uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, and today. You guys are a great crowd. Stay black. Good night forever. Chin, chin, chada, wada, Hey, chin, chin, chada, wada, Hey, chin, chin, chada, wada, That's all for this week, folks. This is from a brand new mashup album called DJ BC Presents Fluent in Mo. Now, listen, if you would like to see one of these Risk Live shows in New York or Los Angeles, the next one is happening in both cities on the same night, June 28th. So come on out and see us. We don't 
have confirmations for some of these yet, but we're talking to a slew of people about doing our summer shows. We're talking to Judah Friedlander and David Cross and Kerry Kenny, Sheng Wang, Carlos Kotkin, Tom Shalou, Helen Hong. But no matter who is on the lineup, Risk is a wonderful evening out. So get your asses in those seats. And don't forget, we teach this stuff too. Because it inspires us. If you go to thestorystudio.org, our school is currently being run by five people. And all five can tell you a true story about how storytelling changed their life. And now, all five of us, we watch as students come in and students will say stuff like, Oh, I'm so shy or I just don't know how to hold people's attention. You come to us and we'll show you how to open up, how to show us a little bit of your heart and your guts, how to examine your life and own it. We teach storytelling because we see how empowering and how affirming it is to share it with others. Check it out online or in person and even corporate workshops at thestorystudio.org. Another reason... I end every episode saying, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Wow! 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 So I feel the dick meat. Heavy dick meat, the dick meat, heavy dick meat, what? Horse dick, heavy dick meat, heavy, 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 heavy dick meat, what? It's the biggest horse cock that I've ever seen. <laughs> heavy dick meat, oh my god.